the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. I am Seth Liebson. The phone number is 602-508-0960. That's 602-5080-960. I wouldn't normally prejudice prejudice the jury this way, but this is one of those monologues that... um, I think is just a little extra important, folks. We are supposed to believe in certain fictions, aren't we? Professor Jay Budachevsky puts it in the Wall Street Journal this morning that, for example, most people simply don't believe men can get pregnant or that Abraham Lincoln was in favor of slavery. And yet there are industries dedicated, articles published, cartoons made, human resources speakers paid to promote such things. Uh, Professor Budachevsky tells us too many people look at such things and ignore or dismiss them as culture wars. It's not quite as important as, say, economics or foreign policy. And yet, he goes on to write, quote, Unfortunately, derangement has real-world consequences. The identity ideologies pose an existential threat for the culture, which increasingly affects the everyday lives of individuals, family, and children. Explain why it's not serious that we surgically disfigure children and pump them full of hormones to prevent the onset of puberty, or that we call this care. Explain why it's not serious for medical journals to publish articles discussing whether surgical amputation is the best treatment for people with sound limbs who identify as paraplegics. Explain why it's not serious that drag queen story hours have become an accepted event in many public schools and libraries. Finally, explain why we needn't grieve that so many of us pretend these things aren't happening, are afraid to speak up, or think having a burning concern about them is a distraction from more important things. The the normalization of disorder and empowerment of lunacy are not to be taken lightly. Now there's a serious idea. The normalization of disorder and the empowerment of lunacy. Think about where this comes from. The problem may very well be nihilism, as the political philosopher Leo Strauss put it. Nihilism, the root of which is nil or nile or nothing, is the belief that all truths are subjective and nothing can be known or even really communicated. There is no such thing as objective fact. There is no such thing as truth. Those familiar with its cognate in theology, atheism, will recognize the notion that the danger is not that an atheist believes in nothing, it's that the atheist will believe in anything. And so, too, is that true of the nihilist. The nihilist does, in fact, have beliefs. Nihilists do, in fact, have their own truths. It's just that they are their own truths and nobody else's. Thus, they can or will believe anything while vigorously arguing against someone else's denial of it. Uh, 
A nihilist will deny nature and trust human will. For example, as in a nihilist's belief that men can get pregnant and that there is nothing wrong with it except the denial that it can be so. That is always a wrong to and for the nihilist. Leo Strauss put it that nihilism is the rejection of the principles of civilization as such. A nihilist is then a man who knows the principles of civilization, if only in a superficial way. Civilization and not culture. For I've noticed that many nihilists are great lovers of culture, as distinguished from and opposed to civilization, and yet we never really ask what it is that is supposed to be cultivated in a culture, do we? The human or the human condition, humanity, humaneness seem pretty good answers as to what should be cultivated, but we never quite get to them, do we? We rather promote the avant-garde and simply paste the word culture on it and thus claim it is beyond review or rebuke or opinion. Examples abound from drag queen story hours to paintings of Mary covered in cow dung or artworks taking imagery of Jesus Christ and placing him in an artist's urine. And who is to judge these things? This raises the question of what is not only judged or not to be judged, but accepted and not to be accepted, promoted and not to be promoted. In our school wars, one side thinks it's just fine to teach books like Lawn Boy, L-A-W-N, Lawn Boy. Another side thinks it is not. Lawn Boy is one of the most popularly debated books in these fights over what's to be accepted and what not in our elementary schools. Here's an excerpt from that book. I can't read it all, but it goes something like this. In fourth grade at church youth group meeting out in the bushes, I touched Doug Goebel's word I won't say, and he touched mine word I won't say. In fact, there was even some mouths involved. You flip over to page 91. What if I told you I touched another guy's word I won't say? What if I told you I sucked it? I was 10 years old, but it's true. I put Doug Goebel's word I won't say in my mouth. I was in fourth grade. It was no big deal. He sucked mine too, and you know what? It wasn't terrible, close quote. I have no idea why a book like that is now part of our school libraries and teachings. I guess we figured out all the lessons from the little prince of Antoine Saint-Exupéry and realized it was now time to move on or move forward as the avant-garde would have it. Some think it okay to expose children to this kind of pornography or cross-dressing or transgendered adults in burlesque shows, and others think it isn't. Who's to say? But there is one thing we are not supposed to say, and you know what that is, don't you? We are not supposed to say that exposure to any of this leads to any kind of promotion or ideation of any of this. None of this is ever, after all, allowed to be called suggestive, is it? And to accept that, we have to take leave of all our senses, don't we? Some decades ago, Professor Irving Kristol put it this way, What reason is there to think that anyone was ever corrupted by a book? That question, oddly enough, is asked by the very same people who seem convinced that advertisements in magazines or displays of violence on television do indeed have the power to corrupt. It is also asked, incredibly enough and in all sincerity, by people like university professors and school teachers whose very lives provide all the answers one could want. After all, if you believe 
that no one was ever corrupted by a book, you also have to believe that no one was ever improved by a book or a play or a movie. You have to believe, in other words, that all art is morally trivial and that consequently all education is morally irrelevant. No one, not even a university professor, really believes that. I really think there's a volume of logic in that point and think it worthy of repeating. If you believe that no one was ever corrupted by a book, you also have to believe that no one was ever improved by one or a play or a movie, that all art is morally trivial and all education morally irrelevant. Does anyone truly believe that? You know who doesn't believe it? Something called the advertisement industry. As Rich Lowry put it, the Geico Gecko can convince us to buy car insurance. Donald Trump can post a meme on Truth Social, and it supposedly convinces people to take baseball bats to Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. Someone can use the wrong pronoun, and it can convince a trans person to harm himself or herself. But what can't possibly happen, we are supposed to believe, we are taught, is that the constant discussion and celebration of transgenderism might convince confused young people to decide that they are non-binary or trans. And so with the news of another prominent person identifying as transgender coming out of the Nashville story, is it okay to ask where all of this has come from? What was uniquely rare as recently as 2017 seems now to be increasingly common. I use the year 2017 because it was a shock to many when National Geographic in their January issue of that year featured the title of that issue, Gender Revolution, and put a nine-year-old transgender child on the cover. That was avant-garde then. We seem to read about this kind of thing everywhere now, and it's become almost ho-hum. I was asked not to speak about it in 2017 on a series of interviews I was doing then. Today, everyone speaks about it, mostly from one direction. But the notion that it has become so much more the common cannot possibly be because we've implanted the idea, suggesting it, normalizing it. Can it be? We can't possibly think that, can we? The headline of import here is that the transgender youth population has doubled in the last five years. That gets you to about 2017, doesn't it? And that, we are told, is just to have happened as we destigmatized a condition that was always there, always extant, just afraid of revealing itself. None of it was encouraged, suggested, or inspired, right? You know where we don't believe this? as I said yesterday, with the awful and awfully delicate issue of suicide. Decades of research suggests that suicide is a socially contagious behavior, especially in youth, which is why we have the phrase suicide ideation, the giving of the idea of it, and why we are or used to be so conscientious of it. Marcy Bowers, a gynecologist who is the president of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, told the New York Times this recently, quote, there are people in my community who will deny that there's any sort of social contagion. I should say social contagion. I shouldn't say social contagion, but at least peer influence on some of these decisions. I think that's just not recognizing human behavior, close quote. Rich Lowry puts it that Dr. Bowers is a bit of an outlier. However, Bowers is an exception. It takes as an article of faith among trans activists and much of the left that social contagion is a pernicious myth. This denial is based on the idea that people, especially young people, aren't suggestible. 
As if what we are told, what our friends do and say, what signals we get from society aren't enormously important. And as if awareness and encouragement of transgenderism, non-binary status, and heretofore unknown genders haven't increased dramatically. This is where our culture war stands right now, with an empowerment of lunacy focused almost exclusively at our nation's children, using our children as the infantry for adults' political ground and air wars, and unbeknownst to them at that. It is to me little different from what many witnessed during the Iran-Iraq war, where Iranian children were used as minesweepers and given plastic keys to hang around their necks should they need them as they entered the kingdom of heaven, should they have stepped on a mine in the battlefield as they made it more safe for adults. None of this is right. All of it is wrong, which is why it is, after all, important to believe not only in something but in important things and not nonsense or lunacy. G.K. Chesterton once postulated that a cannibal in the 20th century may ask why his practice is not acceptable at Oxford University, and his fellow student would explain, we just don't do that here, whereas an earlier generation of student would have been able to give the reasons why. We've lost the reasons and reasoning, folks, and been forced to accept nonsense, nothingness, and lunacy, and we will now get more of it, and that it seems to me, is a political war worth fighting. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Um, if you, uh, I once heard Michael Barone say this circa 2000 and three, I think it was, 2003, early 2004. If you don't check out Powerline every day, you're not informed. Um, it, it, it wasn't an overstatement then, and it's not an overstatement now. Not only informed, sometimes even entertained. I encourage you to check it out. There's a terrible, I mean, just awful audio um, and video of uh, someone leading Joe Biden to a meeting, and uh, it's it's been authenticated, and the instructions he has to give Joe Biden as to who he's meeting, where to stand, how to walk, where to walk, uh, it's very, very disturbing. Um, I know there was earlier disturbing video uh, put out today from Nashville. In some respects, this may be more disturbing when you realize this is your commander-in-chief and your president, perhaps you'll understand why. Elsewhere, Steve Hayward has these wonderful updates called Loose Ends, and uh, they're informative as well as entertaining. The mainstream media is struggling with how to cover the Nashville shooter because the highest sin on the left today is using the wrong pronoun. So was the shooter male or female? Multiple stories from major outlets write the story without using any pronouns whatsoever. Entire news stories from the Washington Post, the New York Times itself is twisting itself in a pretzel. They put out a tweet saying female assailants in mass shootings in the U.S. are extremely rare, according to the Violence Project. There was confusion on Monday about the gender identity of the assailant in the Nashville shooting. Officials had used she 
and her to refer to the suspect, who, according to social media posts and a LinkedIn profile, are identifying the shooter as a man. And this is what has driven news outlets crazy. Um, It's okay if news outlets are driven crazy. I don't want us to be. I don't want us to be driven crazy by this craziness. Somehow we've been forced to accept all of this lunacy as if it's, as I said earlier, just ho-hum. It isn't, and it has consequences. Feel-good story of the day, Steve Hayward writes. NPR lays off 100 employees as company faces $30 million decline in revenue. Now, the problem with that is, you know probably what the problem with that is, NPR being national public radio is going to go to the government for that $30 million to make up for it, isn't it? Also, NPR headline, limited scientific evidence men have physical advantage over women in sports. National Public Radio claims that there is limited scientific research supporting the idea that biological males have a physical advantage over biological females in competitive sports. You know why there might be limited scientific research on this? You want to guess why, Bill? Because it's so bleeding obvious in the first place. Who's going to research this nonsense? Oh, let me go get a study grant to find out if biological males are stronger than biological women at the mean or on average. Are you kidding me? Um, yes, it is true, uh, he puts as another loose end, that Trump is surging in polls for the 2024 GOP nomination at the national level. But slow that roll just a little bit. This headline, Ron DeSantis takes lead over Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire polls when you do it by the early states. The race to become president between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former President Donald Trump is more competitive in Iowa and New Hampshire than the rest of the country, according to new polls from a top Republican firm. Yeah, well, those are the polls that kind of tend to matter, um, and I don't make much of them at this stage either. Just for those that think the polls showing Trump is ahead matter, they don't, just as the polls showing Ron DeSantis is ahead matter, they don't. Those who make use of these polls do so for their own advantage, but they don't tell you anything. They just don't tell you anything. You want polls on where Rudy Giuliani and Fred Thompson were when they were running for president? I can give them to you. Or Scott Walker. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. John Dombrowski is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. He's also the host of the Word on Wealth radio show heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. His website, grandcanyonplanning.com. There are, um, there are ironies in our economy, John. I am yes. seeing that um, major uh, corporate office structure rents are having a hard time getting paid and people are leaving them just at the time when people are returning back to work in record numbers. Mm. I see that as one uh, interesting irony uh, in our economy. Uh, Not a great day uh, today uh, for the markets, but interestingly also it looks like um, 
the senators today were scolding some of what we were saying yesterday. Uh, the uh, the people who were uh, supposedly uh, s- supposedly uh, supervising or protecting such things like uh, Silicon Valley Bank yeah. over in the San right. Francisco Fed Reserve. What's interesting to you today? Well, a couple of things, right? So you're talking about the uh, office buildings, yes. <laughs> and, and we're seeing commercial real estate in general is what they're talking about. Potentially, could be the next, uh, you know, shooty drop. Yeah. Uh, and, and why would that be? You know, we would say, well, what's the reason they've made it all through this whole time with, uh, yeah. you know, people not working in those buildings, but yet we're still seeing the cranes and everything happening. Uh, but what's happening really behind the scenes is that as interest rates have been rising, a lot of these um, buildings that have been either in construction, maybe uh, they have their interim financing, which is the financing that's being done during the the build out of that uh, office complex. Once that building is done, they go into a final phase of permanent financing. And of course, the permanent financing rates have increased drastically, right, over the past couple of years. So this is now the challenge that's facing a lot of these these builders that have built these, or owners of these big companies, uh, corporate buildings, yeah. um, and now they're going to have a possibility of where they're not going to have renters in there. So interest rates going up, they're going to be paying much more for the money if they could even get it. Uh, and then the problem is, is that what are the banks going to do? Are the banks going to want to go back into the business of foreclosing on these properties? I have a sense and a feeling, Seth, that this could be a little different than we've seen in the past. Oh, okay. And my my thought process on this is that banks don't want to be uh, real estate owners. That's uh-huh. not their business. Uh-huh. And what they would probably wind up doing is is trying to work with these these owners of these buildings, trying to help them uh, maybe with some favorable rates, taking less maybe uh, profit on the interest side of things to help them through this period of time. Because it looks to be that interest rates may be peaking right here. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, next year could be a totally different look on where we are versus today. And if that's the case, uh, it would probably be a good business sense for a bank to really work with maybe some of these owners of these buildings, work with them in the short term on, on uh, you know, the loans that they might have, and then renegotiate those things in, a, in another year or two. Is the relationship between these big corporate properties and housing related or inversely related? We're seeing home prices falling uh, yep. for the seventh straight month as well. They But they may be totally different markets altogether. They really are, yeah. right? Because, you know, people buy the house for, for to live in a home, yeah. right? And uh, it's, it's, it is totally different. And we buy a home to live in it usually for a long period of time. Uh, we're not worried about rental income because that's our place that we live. Okay. Uh, but there are those who have purchased homes now on the other side of it for investment. And, mm-hmm. and maybe that's a little bit of the same thing. But, of course, the rental market is extremely strong, right. Seth. So... Uh, if you own a, a second home and you want to rent it out, you probably have no problem filling it, whereas these uh, office buildings are quite a bit different. Uh, and, of course, the cost of some of these buildings today with all of the regulatory And maintenance. I mean, that's a real issue. The maintenance yes. part seems to be the mm-hmm. unwritten story about yeah. a lot of these buildings, too, because yeah. it's hard to get the people needed right now to maintain them. And I hear a lot of those complaints yeah. with these type A or B buildings. Yeah, you know, I talk to a lot of people when it comes to, uh, in general, and with contractors, trying to yeah. find good yeah. subcontractors. Yeah. Uh, the subcontractors are having trouble finding employees, yeah. so the work is delayed. Uh, the costs and the overall, uh, you know, items now are available, uh, and the costs have come down a bit. 
the shortages aren't necessarily there. Uh, but it's the people. Yeah. That's where the shortage is. That's right. And it's creating all sorts of havoc for people who are in the process of building something. And it's making it more expensive because they're carrying this short-term debt uh, you know, for a longer period of time. And now, when they go to do the final refinance on that, they're going to be paying a lot more. So it is, it's, a, it's, it's a bad situation all around. But I'm hoping that the banks are going to get creative here and uh, work through this, this problem. I like what you said about the people. Economics is not a cold scientific art or study or mm-hmm. area of uh, academic interest. It's still the study of people. Yes, it is. And human behavior. Thank you, John. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipic, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Check out our website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Thanks. Thanks, John. Talk Bye. to you soon. Yes. Be good. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. There is one thing in the New York Times I would commend to people reading today. There is a long essay on Dr. Fauci in the opinion section written by uh, one Megan Stack. I'll talk a little bit more about it with Hugh Hallman later in the show. But a very important uh, piece Uh, once the New York Times starts going after Fauci and liberal writers at the New York Times start going after Fauci, even just a little bit, you know something's changing. It's a shame and it's sad that it's taken so long. Get this. I mean, the story is about his views on the lab leak theory in the main, but this this is this is a sentence you probably would never have guessed would come from the New York Times. Anthony Fauci has displayed a Hamiltonian distrust of ordinary people. When he admitted to lying about the benefits of masking because he feared panicked shoppers would buy up all the masks needed by frontline workers, or when he confessed to repeatedly nudging the herd immunity target higher, according to what he thought Americans could bear, apparently applying the boiling frog theory to our collective tolerance for restrictions, he said it's almost impossible to sort this out for the general public to understand. Well, several things are going on in just those two sentences and the quote. Several things are going on. One, thank goodness someone at the New York Times remembers what the New York Times wrote about Anthony Fauci and what he said and that they had discovered that he was lying when it came to herd immunity. We quoted that a bunch we haven't in a long time. I thought everyone forgotten about it and moved on. This writer at the New York Times remembers it, and she's proud of uncovering it, and good for them. They did do that. They did get him to admit he was lying at the end of 2021 when it came to herd immunity. The other thing is that it's interesting that they're saying how much he looks down on ordinary Americans or that he is using this notion that the general public can't understand basic theories. Well, if they couldn't understand basic theories, why do why would he do any interviews at all? Why would he do his first interview saying masks aren't unnecessary and can be harmful? I I don't think honestly to this moment, I don't think he said that because he was worried about frontline workers getting enough masks. No one knew anything about supply chains when he said that so early on. I think he said it because every piece of scientific research up until then had shown what he said is that masks in a general population 
to uh, to prevent contagion simply don't work. Every scientific study on it had shown that. And now, of course, we know that every scientific study since has pretty much concluded the same thing. I don't think it was about his concern for frontline workers. And I don't think he believes it's impossible for the general public to understand the principles he's seeing. When he was asked about them very simply, he threw curveballs. He himself threw curveballs, like on that interview with Sanjay Gupta and herd immunity, the one that Adam Carolla made so much sport of. He threw curveballs. Everyone understood what herd immunity was. Sanjay Gupta and CNN certainly understood it. It's that he wouldn't address himself to it because he didn't want us to hear yet another lie, perhaps, from him. It's interesting that the New York Times is doing this now with Anthony Fauci, a man about whom children's books have been written, a man who went on a tour of the media only a month and a half ago saying he never lied about anything. Well, the New York Times doesn't agree with that, as none of us have ever agreed with that. How much longer until we can be done with this meddlesome priest, and how much longer until we can be done generally with this notion that we're supposed to trust these experts when it's a matter of actually not having our brains so open to experts that they fall out and we unlearn everything we knew or thought we knew because an expert has an agenda. And in this case, the agenda turns out, according to this New York Times piece, to be the worst agenda in the world. It wasn't political after all. It used politics. But Anthony Fauci's agenda, as I say, I'll get into this with Hugh a little bit later. Anthony Fauci's agenda was to protect his own hide. It was about self-preservation. It wasn't so much about politics. It was about using politics to hide and conceal what he himself was up to. This piece in the New York Times, well worth reading, and it doesn't hold back any punches on this. One wonders what he had to have done to anger the New York Times. <laughs> Did he refuse another sit-down with them or something? One wonders. But it's all out there now. And it's not, again, any glee we take. We don't strut over these things. We're not saying, I told you so, because we're happy to say, I told you so. We're saying, I told you so, so that you next time perhaps won't make such costly mistakes. Costly financially and costly in the human realm as well, the human associations that were ripped apart, uh, the relationships that were broken apart, friendships, families, uh, romantic relationships, all ripped apart by the weaponization of these things based on one, really one person, really one person unaccountable to the public trying to protect his own hide and really gaslighting the rest of the public that wouldn't go along with it. And not because he found it hard to communicate. He's a very clear communicator. He's such a clear communicator that people who were supporting his would quote him verbatim. He knows how to communicate, and he knows how to survive. He knows how to survive in a bureaucracy, one of the most dangerous things one can have, especially when they wield that much power. So I hope we take the right lesson from all of this, which is to say never again. That really is the right lesson. It's going to take a long time to build trust in the institutions we used to trust. And a lot of them aren't doing a single thing about it. Medical community and the professional medical associations 
aren't giving us any reasons to trust them as they go down these vortexes of DEI and trying to convince us that pronouns don't matter and that race is a social construct and all these other things that have nothing to do with medicine, confessions of faith that they have to take and oaths they have to swear to the gods of diversity rather than the previous gods of science and health and first doing no harm. It wouldn't be such a bad thing if we went back to first doing no harm. But then again, you know what it's going to take? It's going to take a certain level of political philosophy to teach what harm means. You know, there's this oft-used refrain that someone's trying to destroy the country, particularly when we don't agree with them politically. It's not that they think they're trying to destroy the country. It's that they have a different view of destruction than you do. What you may think is destruction, they may think is beneficial. That's why we need to go back to first terms and first thinkings and first philosophies and understanding not the progressive mindset, but the anti-progressive mindset, not the nihilist mindset, but the mindset that actually believes in things like facts and truth. Pretty good things, those dispensing with them pretty bad. How do you think the Biden economy is handling the econ- the Biden administration is handling the economy, folks? With the bank stories we've been talking about, the stock market volatility, a possible recession coming. This is where my friends Y Refi enter the picture. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to any of that, the stock market or the Fed? It's a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. It's a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. Do talk to my friends at Y-Refi if this interests you. They're local. You can visit and meet with them. I know them really well, trustworthy, honest, no sales pitch. Y-Refi is also a due diligence approved firm, and you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. Um, do you sometimes get the sense that you were played a little bit by not just the stories I was talking about, but a lot of different stories? New York Times eight days ago, prosecutors signal criminal charges for Trump are likely eight days ago. Now where is it? Nowheresville. Just Nowheresville. ABC 7 New York reported this morning grand jury likely won't vote on possible indictment until next week at earliest. I'm beginning to think next week will just be another week of wringing hands and worry about something that's not going to happen. Whatever happened to John Fetterman? Whatever happened to the classified documents at Biden's house? But really, John Fetterman, whatever happened to him? Selena Zito writes that uh, on October 30 last year, just nine days before the elections, Democratic Senate nominee John Fetterman told a crowd in um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to pay no mind to his debate performance. He said, come January, when a new Congress is sworn in, I'll be better, but Dr. Oz will still be a fraud. At the same time, 
the remaining senator from Pennsylvania, Democrat Bob Casey, spoke with Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC and said that John Fetterman was just fine, missing a word or two, and that he and his team had been virtuous in their transparency every step of the way. Except, of course, that they had not. They had not been. And now Fetterman is nowhere to be found. Anyway, the lies are stacking up, folks. How many can we live with? I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.